You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, but as, as we do that, oftentimes I use the phrase, and, and I sign off emails, and it's on our church website and all these kinds of things, the phrase, Jesus is everything. As we were getting going in terms of the way and developing sort of who we wanted to be in the local uh, body of Christ, which that's, that's a thing that, that we'll hear about even today, the idea of unity. And I've spoken about this before. I'm struggling with like, man, what does that look like for us to be unified with the body of Christ? There's so much division in the church. But, but as we were developing that a couple years ago, um, that was the phrase that I feel like the Lord put on my heart. It's just to say, Jesus is everything, right? There's so many other things that we sort of prioritize within the concept of us gathering together as the church, but at the heart and soul of it, Jesus has to be everything. He has to be in everything, through everything, about everything. Now, if Jesus is everything to us, and we take his entire life as an example to us, then the cross of Jesus Christ has to be everything as well to us. All the components of Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, the example that he gives, need to be everything to us. They need to be the topmost, like most prioritized thing in our life. And as a result of that, the cross has to be everything as well. In fact, it's what the men talked about on Wednesday night when we gathered together here, was the impression for us that the cross can't be some distant imagery it can't be some uh like idolatrous thing where it's just sort of on a wall and we worship it but it has to be something far more personal something that we embrace in fact christ calls us to embrace the cross when he says if you would come after me if you would follow along with me then each person needs to take up their cross and follow me day by day Right? And so the cross, even though it was an uh, 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 object of Roman torture, right? it was an implement of torture, it was something that because Jesus embraced it as the sacrifice that had to take place, his life on that cross, he calls you and me to emulate him, to copy him. And so the cross has to be, in fact, Paul would say the same thing. He would say every time we come to the table of communion, every time we come to the central point of why we gather together to remember the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for us, we proclaim his death until he returns. See, the Christian life is full of paradox. The Christian life is full of statements or truths that seem to be in opposition to each other or at the very least opposite of one another. Let, let me, I told you to go to Ephesians 4. Stay there. Let me read to you out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where Solomon the preacher talks about truths that are universal in life. And in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says this, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now listen, these are, these are paradoxical statements. They seem to be in contradiction to each other, but at the end of the argument, they sort of logically make sense. That's a paradox. Ecclesiastes 3.2 says, There is a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep 
and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. See, I find it to be true that in the Christian life, there are endless amounts of paradox. The definition of a paradox is, is a logically self-contradictory statement. It's the idea that two things can be true at the same time. They seem to oppose each other. Even what Solomon says here, there's a time to love and a time to hate. That just seems so opposite. That even seems opposite of the message of what Jesus tells us, that we're to love one another, right? And yet God explains this truth through Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon to say there are seasons for everything and even things that might seem contradictory when we stop and consider them under God's truth and God's authority, we start to realize that it makes sense, right? Just like we explained last week, that God in his all-encompassing character, he's all love. He's entirely defined by love, but love includes wrath or God's hatred against sin, right? These are the paradoxes that exist within scripture and because they exist within scripture, they exist within the Christian life as well. We're confronted with paradox almost on every page of the Bible. Now, here's how that is true. The first part of the definition of paradox is a logically self-contradictory statement. The second part of the definition is this, or a paradox can be a statement that runs contrary to one's expectations. And when I read that definition of paradox, that's where it hit home for me. It's not just the academic exercise or the theological exercise of saying, it appears that God encompasses all things, even if they seem to be in contradiction to each other, and it's logical to us because it's God, right? And he's universal, he's all-encompassing, right? He's omnipresent, omnipowerful, all those things. But for us in the Christian life, that's where paradox really hit home, is that it's a statement that runs contrary to our expectations. See, when we come into the life of Christ, when we come to Jesus, oftentimes we bring with us expectations, our expectations that we then place upon Jesus or upon God and his plan for us or upon God's word and how we want to receive it. We have our own expectations. Someone told me that Christianity is easy. It's simple. Just believe in Jesus. And yet I encounter daily as I'm just trying to believe in Jesus and I'm reading his, his scripture, his words, I'm encountering things that seem to contradict themselves. How can that be? I'm struggling to figure out what that means. I heard one preacher in one church say one thing about the end times, and I heard the other group say a different thing, and then I heard a third group say something completely different. How can there be contradictions within the same family, within the same people who call themselves disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus? 
See, we have expectations of our own that we bring to the faith. And or we can get confused by different explanations by different people within the same faith. But one of the things that we have to do especially is understand that God has called us to partner with him. And that, again, is a hard concept to think, well, God of the universe, he's all-powerful. Can't he just do everything by himself? Yeah, he can. But the method in which he has chosen to present salvation is by using you and me. Now, that's a mind-blowing idea and concept to say God wants to partner with us. God, my, my expectation and my, my understanding is that I come to Jesus, I believe upon Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, I receive salvation, and then... I'm just happy because I'm free, right? I know I get to go to heaven, and whatever happens to me, grace, 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 right? I've sinned, I've fallen, grace. And, and you know, the church is here so that I can be encouraged, so that I can receive, and I can benefit, and all these things. That's oftentimes our expectation when it comes to the faith. And yet, we have to be reminded that God calls us to partner with him. And gives us responsibilities in the work of salvation. Salvation, all of the Lord. 110%. It's him. His calling. His uh, sacrifice. His redemption. Everything is of the Lord. And yet, he asks us to partner with him to be commissioned emissaries. He sends us out as apostles to take the gospel out to places where it has never existed before. He calls us to be witnesses to the world of the work that Christ has done in our lives. And he calls us, and here's the rub, this is the hardest one, he calls us to be examples of his perfection, of his love and light, of his faithfulness and his holiness. I think we shortchange that a lot of times in our faith. I think that's a message we need to hear more and more. And again, I always add this caveat that we would produce good works not for the sake of our salvation. Salvation comes first, that's all of the Lord, but we are saved unto righteousness and good works. We're called to good works. And so there is this paradox that says salvation is all of the Lord, and yet God calls us in our salvation to behave in a specific way, to show the example of his holiness and righteousness in a life that still is tempted to sin, in a flesh that still gives in to the temptation of Satan, of worldliness. And here is what Paul addresses in Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we, we, we read this polemic imperative where Paul says in Ephesians 4, Verse 17, now this I say and testify to the Lord. He says, basically, I'm, I'm raising my hand in court, putting my other hand on the Bible and saying, I swear to Almighty God that this is true. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There's no debating. There's no uh, excuses. There's no justification in opposition to this statement. Paul says, this is the truth. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And we, we covered that last week. But take a look at verse 25. Head down to verse 25, and that's where we're going to spend our time. Let's read this and then, and then pull from it 
perhaps some of the paradox that God reveals that might mess with or even perhaps explode our own expectations of what it means to walk with the Lord. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then underline, circle, highlight, whatever you need to do. Verse 32, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I've said many times just in the explanation of God's grace to us and the life that he's called us to, this life that we live under the forgiveness of Jesus, the work of the cross, we are now free from the consequence of our sin, which is eternal separation from God, death in that sense. But one of the things that I think sometimes we miss or perhaps have even been mistaught in the church in this day and age is that because the cross of Christ has fulfilled all of the legal requirements of the Old Testament law, that somehow you and I are free from the law. But what scripture defines and says for us very clearly is that we are free from the consequence of breaking the law. That's what we're free from. from pardon me. God's law is eternal. It doesn't ever change. When he laid out the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are still in effect for you and I. It's just that Jesus having fulfilled them, you and I find our righteousness in him, not in our attempt at fulfilling the law. Are we tracking? Yeah, God's law still exists. It's there. It's been laid out. It is the example of holiness. And so a lot of times within the faith, we, we, we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, yeah, if only I had a list of things to do. God, if you would just give me a list, rather than this whole thing of living life by faith and trying to figure out what you mean in the, in the scriptures, just give me a list of things. I'll do my best to check those off. And if I can check those off, then you and I are good, right? That's, that's what we want oftentimes is just a list from God. Like we've said many times, he gave us a list, the Ten Commandments for one. The rest of the 613 ceremonial laws that exist within uh, the Old Testament scriptures, right? He gave us lists on end. On our own, we can't do those things. We just will fail, right? Like we make idols out of things. And so even the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Or, or, or you shall not have any graven images, uh, those kinds of things. We fail at that just like frequently, like easily we fail in those things. And so, so there's no way under our own steam, if you will, under our own strength that we have the ability to fulfill the law. Therefore, that's why Jesus came 
lived the perfect life, became the perfect sacrifice on our behalf at the cross so that all of the law, him living perfectly, having been fulfilled, him being the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, we now are empowered by Jesus' example through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life to start chipping away at those laws, to start working on those things. Not because it's going to gain us any points or secure our salvation any more than our faith in Jesus. By no means. Our salvation only comes by faith in Jesus. But because we have faith in Jesus, salvation, we're, in, we're filled with the presence of God, all the things that God says we should do according to the law, not in a ceremonial, not in a religious sense, but in the fact that Jesus was perfect, we're called to live in that type of holiness we can start doing the things that Jesus did imperfectly with sin still present in us, being worked out, us being sanctified as time goes on. But here's what the New Testament shows us. Not just a retelling of the list of the laws in the Old Testament, but new lists that say, hey, under the power of the Holy Spirit, Here's some things you really need to consider. And so let's take a look here. There's there, there six statements here that Paul lays out for the church. And they, they show the, the uh, opposition against each other. The statements, he'll make one positive, one negative, if you will. Some of these statements appear to be very paradoxical in the same way that Solomon spoke in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's take a look at it again. Paul says in verse 25, Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The first thing that Paul gives in terms of a list for us as members of the church is to put away falsehood. In other words, don't lie. Paul just says very simply, hey, you in the church, don't lie to one another. Speak, speak the truth to one another. In putting away falsehood, what we're doing is putting away our selfish desires. That's really the heart of it. Anything we hear in terms of, of lists that would say, hey, this is the result of you being in Christ. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. It's to put away the flesh the selfishness of what's inside of us saying, no, I want my way, but surrendering ourselves constantly and completely to God and saying, no, I'm going to do things your way. And Paul says, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He's saying, don't lie. We're in relationship with each other. Don't, don't, don't put on an act for anybody, but be honest with one another and speak the truth. That's what we're here to do, and that's the example that Jesus gave us. Then he says this in verse 26, and this truly, truly is a paradoxical statement. We could probably spend our whole time discussing this, but in verse 26, it says, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. I would really like it if Jesus, through the apostle Paul, just said, Go ahead, be angry, period. I'd be okay with that one. I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But he says, be angry and do not sin. See, I think a lot of times we equate anger with sin immediately. That if someone is angry 
or uses a stern voice or their face looks frustrated or those kinds of things, we think, well, that's not the appropriate behavior for a Christian. For someone to be angry, well, remember our definition of God being all love, right? He's all love. He's all compassion. He's all grace. But he is equally wrathfully hating sin, right? Now, here's the key. He's God, we're not. We have to bend our expectations and our will to say, when I'm angry, am I being angry because I'm being selfish? Is that the result of my anger? Or am I actually having what, what can be described as righteous anger? Am I anger, angered and frustrated because of something that is in opposition to God, right? I'll just be really transparent and honest. You know, I got got criticized in previous places that I've ministered for calling out things like gossip in the church and being genuinely frustrated at gossip and and calling people out specifically and going, you need to stop talking about other people. You need to stop making up stories or criticizing other people and other ministries. You need to stop. And I would be angry. And and the thing that, that caused a problem for people was that I was angry. Not that I was talking about gossip, which is a sin, which needs to be corrected and has no place in the family and the household of God. I got criticized because your face looked like you were angry. Darn right I was angry. Darn right. And I had to test myself and say, am I angry because they're gossiping about me? Was it the selfishness of like my reputation and my pride? Or am I actually seeing the negative effects within the church of gossip where there's disunity and, and it's breeding other kinds of sin and clicks and all kinds of weird things that just create a bad testimony for the church. And in that case, it very much was the bad testimony of the church and a righteous anger, not to say I'm all holy or great or anything, but it was a righteous anger. And so we as Christians, we, we need to test ourselves. We, we need to be under the examination of the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, what is my motivation here? Am I angry because I'm selfish and because my pride is being hurt? Or am I being angry because someone is being offensive to God and to his law? And so Paul offers this paradox, be angry, be angry, but don't sin in your anger. In fact, don't let the sun go down on your anger, meaning whatever's causing you to be angry, there's a need for resolution. Why? If you, go to, if you go to bed angry, right? Like anybody who's been married probably got that advice. Don't ever go to bed angry. Why? Because by the next morning, you feel as though, well, that passed by. We're okay now. Get up, start the routine again. But that anger, if it is not addressed, will take seed, will take root in your heart, and it will begin to develop bitterness or continuing anger that grows and grows and festers into a point where at some point it's just going to explode. It's going to find its way out. Okay? And that may be years, decades, whatever, but it will find its way out. And so Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And verse 27 is the key here. Give no opportunity to the devil. What does Satan want? He wants to divide us. He wants us to find reasons to not be unified. He wants to twist things in our impression and our expectations of one another that would cause us to be angry and to sit in our anger and stew in our anger and justify our anger towards one another to the point that we don't have a good witness to show to the world. We're not actually loving one another. We're not being gracious. We're not speaking the truth in love. We're just quite simply 
being angry and allowing our flesh to rule us. And so this is what we have to fight against, is what Satan wants to twist and divide and steal the freedom and liberty and joy that we have by being able to forgive one another. Verse 28, the third thing that Paul says, is let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul says that you're supposed to labor. You're supposed to do honest work. In fact, in in another part in Scripture, it says that if you don't work, you don't eat. Right? The things that the church collects in terms of resources and money, it's for people who can't help themselves. It's for widows and orphans. It's for people who are struggling in life in a way that they can't provide for themselves. But Paul would tell the church, hey, quit being busybodies. Quit talking so much. Just go out and work hard. That's a testimony to the Lord. Work hard. And when you work hard, he says, don't be greedy. So number one, don't steal anymore. So so be honest. Do an honest day's work. But do an honest day's work not so that you can accumulate for yourself, but do an honest day's work so that when someone else has need, you have the ability to help them out. That is the true type of, and watch the language, watch, watch what I'm saying, but in terms of community life, right? Not communism, not socialism, but community family where people care for one another and love one another and they're honest they're speaking the truth remember the first thing he said speak the truth how you doing today I'm really struggling really struggling don't know how we're gonna buy groceries this month oh great i've got a hundred bucks i can give you go buy groceries right this is the kind of hard work so that you can be a blessing to someone else that paul's talking about this is the ideal of the church is that we're family we care for one another We're not just putting on a show by by coming on Sundays and telling everybody everything's great. We're being honest with one another. We're telling each other where we struggle. We're praying for one another. We're looking out for one another. We're invested in each other's lives. And so Paul says, don't steal, but also as you work hard and collect the results of that hard work, don't be greedy either. Then he goes on in verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Number four, we are to speak only what builds up so that God's grace might be evident in our lives. The entire concept here is don't speak words of destruction. Don't look to tear down anyone else. Only look to do that which builds up. Yeah, but what if they're saying and doing things that are negative? What if they have to be corrected? There is a way through the grace of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to even call out people who are in sin, but to do it with grace, to do it with love, to do it with the purpose of showing them God's grace through the example of Jesus. Not through our life. We're not perfect. We're pursuing holiness, but it's not a comparison against us. The correction of anyone in the world for any reason is to say, look to Jesus as your paragon of virtue. Look to Jesus as the one who is the example for us to live in holiness. So only speak 
what builds up. Don't speak words that are destructive, that tear down. And we live in a culture, and I'm guilty of this as much as anyone, where sarcasm is seen as a virtue, right? Boy, that guy's got a quick wit. He's got an answer for everything. Somebody says something and he quips right back and, oh, that's so funny. He took advantage of somebody's weakness or somebody's insecurity and he played on it and he made a joke out of it. Sarcasm is one of these things that that our society accepts and even laughs at and promotes. But sarcasm is just, it's just a tool that that covers our own insecurities. It's, It's a weapon and it tears down. And we are called to be those who build up. The word edify in scripture, when we talk about edification, it's a, it's a word that's related to architecture, like an architect who's drawing out plans on how to build a building, right? To edify means to build up, to build a structure that gets to keep going up and is strong and stable. We're to edify one another with our words. And just on a practical piece of advice here, because this is very, very common in our society, especially in the church, there's a lot of criticisms of people that we disagree with, people that are promoting things or teaching things that perhaps we don't believe or don't see in Scripture, and so we, we, do our, we, we like to criticize from a distance. Here's just a little piece of advice. If you are not in direct conversation with someone, if you are not in, an, in a position to where you can actually bring that criticism or offense to someone that you can dialogue with, just hold back. That's probably not your place to make a judgment call on those things. That's somebody else's ministry. And again, I, I'm, I'm guilty of this. In the ministry, we learn these things, right? To stand on stage and go, don't listen to that guy. Don't follow that teaching. Now, are there, are there warnings in terms of, of there are sheep and wolves clothes within the church? Yeah. But are they in this church or somebody else's church? Somebody else's gathering, right? If all of a sudden there was somebody was promoting a teaching in this gathering that goes against scripture, then it's my job to go, no, that's not right. I have to be a shepherd. I have to protect the sheep. But when it's some other church on YouTube or their website and I don't have a relationship with them, I don't have the ability to, to, to talk to them and say, let's sit with the scriptures and reason together, then it's probably best for me to just keep my opinions to myself at that point. That's somebody else's responsibility. Ultimately, it's God's responsibility. Okay, So speak only what builds up so that the grace of God might be shown. Now, Paul continues in verse 30. And says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Number five, Paul gives very distinct instructions of what we are to do as Christians. Doesn't say that we're supposed to stand on the street corner and yell at cars. Doesn't say that we're supposed to make signs and picket anybody or anything. It says that the witness that we're supposed to have in the church, now that we've left the world behind, now that we have left the, 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 the Gentile pagan world behind, now that we're a part of God's people, What we need to do in addition to the first four things that we read here, 
The fifth is that we need to put away or do away with in our life things like bitterness, our wrath, our anger, our clamor, right? The noise that we make about things. And slander, speaking poorly about other people. This is, this is what he says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How is it that we could grieve the Holy Spirit? Number one, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is God. This is a challenge for us. We think, I, I'll just say I, typically think of God as God the Father, right? In that authoritative, creative role that God the Father is God. Now, I understand that Jesus is also God, but he's Jesus. He's the one who is here on earth and he died on the cross. And I understand uh, uh, intellectually that the Holy Spirit is God too, but really, honestly, the Holy Spirit's kind of the, the weird uncle of the three. Let's just be honest, right? There's some things that the Holy Spirit does that we're just like a little bit like, man, do we have to invite him? Like, does he have to come to Thanksgiving every year? Because it's just a little awkward. The things that the Bible says that are, are real about him, they're real, they really do happen, but man, it's just uncomfortable sometimes, right? But why we have to consider and think and know that God the Father is God, that Jesus the Son is equally God, and the Holy Spirit is is equally God is for the purpose of scripture like this when Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You and I may have this conception of like, I don't want to sin against God. Like he's the judge, right? Like he's my father. We should also have that same impression about the Holy Spirit. I don't want to sin against the Holy Spirit. That's the presence of God that he, that he has said will be with us. See, again, we externalize this so much of the time. God's up there. We're waiting at some point to stand before him there. But the reality is, is that we're standing before him right here, right? And so Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, what grieves the Holy Spirit? The same thing that grieves the, the Father and the same thing that grieves the Son when we rebel against him. When, when we turn our back to him and say, no, I'm not gonna do the thing that you say I should do. And what we're told about the Holy Spirit as we studied in Galatians is that the fruit or, or the, the outcome of the presence of God with us, his Holy Spirit in us, are things like love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And against those things, there is no law against those things. That's the stuff that should be coming out of us. When it's not, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit but instead, put away, get off of you things like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, along with all malice. That's why the teaching of Scripture, again, Christianity is not easy. It's not easy by a far stretch. Why? Because no matter how bad we were hurt, no matter how bad they sinned against us, no matter how broken my heart is, I can't allow that anger to stay. I can't be bitter. I have to forgive. I have to love. And that's a hard, that's a hard word. Anybody who says Christianity is easy is full of it. They've never really done it. Because for me to look at the person who offended me, who with intent spoke poorly about me, lied about me, and to forgive them genuinely. Not, not 
I'll forgive you, but I'm going to remember this and hold it against you in years to come. No, genuinely forgive and seek the benefit and goodwill of that other person. It's hard. It can only be done through God's grace, which is what Paul says here. The last thing that, that Paul says here, verse 32, and I said, underline this, circle this, highlight this, make, make this the, the pinnacle of what we read this morning. Verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and this is the key, these last six or seven words here, six words, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the, this is the ultimate like, like gut check for us. Do we want salvation? Do we want our life to, to receive the eternal promise of life everlasting with God, free from sin in the presence of the Lord? Do we want all those things? Do we want salvation that comes through the work of the cross? Do we want to be forgiven? If we do, then all of a sudden it's on us to do the same for others. It's to forgive others. It's to put all those things away that Paul said, all the anger and the wrath and the noise and all those things, but, but instead of those things, we replace those things with being kind to one another, being tender-hearted. Another word for that is empathetic, feeling what somebody else feels and really putting yourself in a position to go, man, that must be hard what you're going through. I need to reserve my judgment about you because I'm feeling what you're feeling, your confusion, your frustration, your hurt, all those things. I'm feeling that. I'm tender-hearted. And as a result of that, I'm able to forgive you. No matter what you've done to me, I'm able to forgive because, because God, through Christ's sacrifice, forgave me. And the difference between our sin one to another and our sin against God is the difference between life and death. And here's what I mean. Our sin against God gives us the penalty, the consequence of death from the very first sin that we've ever committed. It's death that we deserve. That's the only thing we deserve is death because we've sinned against a holy and righteous God. Our sin one to another against each other is like minuscule in comparison to that because we really don't deserve anything from anyone. We're all sinners. We're all on the same plane. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul will say in Romans, right? So because we're all sinners, we don't owe each other anything. None of you are perfect. I don't owe you anything. You don't owe me anything, right? We owe God everything. And yet, the parallel is made. Because God forgave us in Christ, we're to forgive one another as well. We need to remember that Jesus Christ forgave us for sinning, for being angry, for letting Satan influence us and control us. He forgave us for stealing. He forgave us for speaking destructive words. He forgave us for grieving the Holy Spirit, rebelling against God's law. And he did that through the cross. He paid the penalty. He was the sacrifice that you and I owed for our sin. And when we remember that, and when we hear all the instructions of Scripture, the lists even, 
that say, as a, as a follower of Christ, these are things you have to do. This isn't, this isn't negotiable. This is stuff you need to be doing. Then it should come to us that Jesus and his cross are everything. Without them, we have nothing. 